Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hockey culture clearly needs a reckoning. Also on tap, Darts Transit, the Emergencies Act, the Canadian border protecting your personal data. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Well, this was all over the news yesterday. Five players on Canada's 2018 World Junior Hockey Team have been told to surrender to police in London in connection to an alleged sexual assault, group sexual assault. London police said in a statement they plan to provide details at a news conference on February 5th. And I'll get to that point in just a couple minutes. But here's the statement from London police. We understand that there is significant public interest in relation to a sexual assault investigation dating back to 2018. While we are unable to provide an update at this time, we anticipate that the London Police Service will hold a news conference on Monday, February 5th, to share further details. Now, let's take you back, because London Police initially investigated the alleged sexual assault and closed the case without charges in 2019. But the alleged victim filed a civil suit in May of 2022, which was quietly settled by Hockey Canada. We learned this later for $3.55 million. Following that, Hockey Canada came under a firestorm of criticism. And so much so that they overhauled their leadership group, the board of directors, the CEO, all resigning in the fall of 2022. It took them time to finally make that decision, as you will recall. Weeks after that firestorm first began to say, look, we need a change atop Hockey Canada. Like, what is going on? We need a culture change at Hockey Canada and throughout the sport, frankly. And so many major corporate sponsors, Tim Hortons, Canadian Tire, Scotiabank, Esso, Nike, they all said, we have to pull away. And so, too, did Canada's provincial member bodies, hockey associations, in each province pulling their support of Hockey Canada. Although all all of those hockey bodies and many of those major sponsors have since returned. And while the players have not been formally named, five of them have been granted an indefinite leave from their respective teams. And you probably saw many of the names yesterday. Michael McLeod and Cal Foote of the New Jersey Devils were given an indefinite leave from the team. Carter Hart of the Philadelphia Flyers, Dylan Dubé of the Calgary Flames, and former Ottawa Senators player Alex Fermentin, who's now playing in Europe. Foote's agent previously told Global News, this is back in 2022, that his client was not involved in the alleged sexual assault. A lawyer for Carter Hart at the time said his client had not engaged in any wrongdoing. Dubé's agent said at the time his client did not engage in any wrongdoing. And attempts by Global News to contact representatives for McLeod and Fermentin went unanswered. And I should make mention of this, that none of the allegations have been proven in court. And so here's a couple of things. Number one, that London police, two things about London police. Number one, that they initially investigated this and closed the case without charges in 2019, like WTF. And then we learn later that a civil suit is filed and Hockey Canada 
secretly settles for three and a half million. Hockey Canada didn't even come out and say, you know what, this happened and we settled. They knew something was up. They knew wrongdoing was done. And they probably knew who was involved. Yet they covered it up. And following that, London police then say, well, okay, we'll reopen the investigation. Duh. Part two about London police is, why wait till February 5th? What needs to happen for you to share further details? Are we waiting for these people to surrender and then have the news conference? Is there a secret deadline in place for these players to go to London police to say, all right, I give myself up? If that's the case, let us know. I think the public deserves to know this. Here is another tidbit that I think set, well, it set me off and it set a lot of other people off as well. That as all of this is going down, and you will recall this was a massive story in 2022. Huge story. Hockey Canada, the national game, is shaken to its core over this despicable incident. This scandalous group sexual assault. And the recalls to revamp the entire system. And so as all of this is going down yesterday morning, comes a tweet from the, or a post on X, from the National Hockey League. And the National Hockey League Public Relations Department, whatever they're calling themselves. And it simply says, NHL statement on the Smith Entertainment Group. And again, this this is being shared as everyone is diving into this Hockey Canada group sexual assault scandal. The latest developments on five players being told to surrender to London police. So as that is happening, the NHL sends out a post saying... It appreciates the interest expressed by Smith Entertainment Group to bring NHL hockey to Utah. It could not have waited another day to do so. It could not have waited another day. The NHL could not have waited one more day to say, yeah, we have some interest in Utah. As the game is under attack and a microscope is being placed upon this sport that many of us love. The NHL says, hey, Utah's going to maybe one day get an expansion team. Holy tone-deaf Batman. Absolutely absurd for the NHL to do that. Listen, I understand they have a marketing department and they're going to share some stuff on social media, but holy cow, read the room. Read the room. By the way, penalties for sexual assault in this country. Under Section 271 of the Criminal Code, if you commit a sexual assault and the Crown proceeds as an indictable offense, the maximum prison term is 10 years. Now, if the victim is under the age of 16, which in this case it was not, there is a minimum one-year jail term and a maximum penalty is 14 years behind bars. And also, if convicted... The offenders' names are also added to the National Sex Offender Registry. So, myself, and I'm sure you are as well, very intrigued to hear what is going to happen on February 5th. What is going to be announced on February 5th by London Police? And so when that happens, you'll definitely want to keep it right here on 900CHML to figure out what are uh, the next steps in this process. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk about darts. 
because the city of Hamilton is mulling over the idea of taking over the operation of Darts Accessible Transit. Darts is a nonprofit agency. It's contracted by the city to operate the local paratransit service, although it's not a perfect situation, that is for sure. A number of complaints have been filed. In fact, last year, in the first quarter of last year, there were more complaints filed than in all of 2022. So improvements can happen and uh, obviously should happen. Anthony Frazina is the founder of Above and Beyond, also the volunteer director of media relations with the Ontario Disability Coalition, and joins us once again on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Anthony, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm okay. Now, you're a regular customer of darts. Uh, is this welcome news? I, I think I'm cautiously optimistic with the, the potential of the city taking over. It really comes down to accountability uh, from the top and, you know, leading and having a leadership in a way that uh, includes people with disabilities as part of solutions. What deficiencies have you encountered with in dealing with darts? Uh, first and foremost, uh, Rick, it's uh, about people's abilities and having the autonomy, agency, and respect and independence to maneuver on and off a vehicle on their own, to taking certain assistive devices, such as a bundle buggy, you know, things like, you know, darts being late to, to pick up a, a passenger and having only to wait five minutes for when, a, for when they arrive, for when the passenger is ready for them. Uh, 15 minutes on either end of the window amounts to half an hour uh, that we have to be ready for them. There, there's so much going on with darts right now that really needs to be improved upon. What about the availability standpoint? Are there enough vehicles to go around? Is that something that the city should be addressing? We certainly know for a fact that there are not enough vehicles to go around. There's things to take into consideration like inclement weather, vehicle breakdowns. We heard a couple of years ago with the the shortage of vehicles that the city advised darts to take off the road due to uh, inefficiencies. There's so many um, problems, but I look I look at it more as really opportunities to improve the improve the services for uh, everybody who rides darts. And and the ridership is only going to increase as uh, the days go by. I know you've made a number of complaints to darts, which in fact actually go to the city and, and not darts themselves. And and I know you're not alone in, in making the complaints. A lot of people have complained about uh, a, a number of things, including you know being late for pickups or, or drop-offs. Where do you see the biggest area of improvement? Well, again, just you know having the opportunity for more vehicles. You know things like improving their logistics system. Things like once you're on a vehicle, they can have you on the vehicle for upwards of an hour. Things like, you know, going past the destination to pick up another passenger because it is a shared ride service. Uh, when it makes more sense to drop that passenger who's currently on the vehicle off to at their destination. Things like um, more management in the logistics standpoint, I think, is uh a huge need right now for darts. So it could be easier to book a ride or, or, or they should make the system a little easier? Oh my goodness, Rick. Um, <laughs> in, terms of, uh, in terms of booking a ride, I'm currently on a waiting list for a ride for next Wednesday. I mean, there's no spontaneity. There's no opportunity to get from point A to point B within uh, uh, hours, let alone a day, for example. Um, things like, you know, disclosing information on appointment times. That's 
to me, that's personal information that doesn't necessarily need to be disclosed. Uh, and just just the lack of spontaneity, I'll, I'll reiterate, the fact that even booking a week in advance doesn't necessarily guarantee you a ride. Yeah, I mean, you're on a waiting list for a ride for a week from yesterday. A week from yesterday. I booked it right when they opened uh, at 8.30, and uh, I was simply put on a waiting list because that is a quote-unquote busier time for them, which really doesn't necessarily involve the passenger that should be a note to them have more vehicles out there at that particular time have more vehicles out at peak times you know and be aware of the inclement weather be aware of vehicle breakdowns be aware of things that it can help improve the uh service for the passengers darts doesn't sound very accessible at all to be honest there's a lot of there's a lot of room for opportunities for darts to improve and i and i think including the ridership and in the community, uh, the users of darts being part of the solution will help remedy all these um, uh, negatives that darts currently uh, employs. Yeah, I, I want to jump on that, too. We're speaking with Anthony Frazina, the founder of Above and Beyond, volunteer director of media relations with the Ontario Disability Coalition. We're talking about the city of Hamilton, at least at this point, thinking about taking over the operation of darts accessible transit. Has anyone reached out to you or anyone in the community to say, hey, we'd love your feedback. How, how should we do this? Absolutely. I've talked to people who use darts on a, on a regular basis, on a daily basis. And I think the, the opportunity is to approach this with intention rather than obligation to, to get the system right. Understanding the fact that one person with a disability is one person with a disability and understanding the needs of one can help improve the needs of many. Because if we look at it from the perspective of the diversity in the, in the disability sector that we have, which in the, is in abundance here in Hamilton, we can help make this service more accessible and more inclusive for uh, the community at large. Well, let's hope whatever is decided upon, it turns your cautious optimism into uh, 100% optimism and we get a better system in place. And a lot of other people will love to see that as well. Anthony, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Rick. You have a great day. You too. Anthony Frazina, founder of Above and Beyond and the volunteer director of media relations at the Ontario Disability Coalition. Jeez, you know, booking a ride for next Wednesday and you're on a wait list. Like what? <laughs> how is that? How does that even work? Clearly improvements need to be made. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk about the Emergencies Act. There was a ruling on Tuesday by a federal judge that said the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act to disperse the Freedom Convoy back in 2022 was unreasonable. Justice Richard Mosley said the government's, quote, decision to declare a public order emergency did not satisfy the requirements of the Emergencies Act and that temporary measures adopted to deal with the protests infringed provisions of the Canadian Charter of Rights. Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland was quick to offer a response, saying that the government will appeal. I would just like to take a moment to remind Canadians of how serious the situation was in our country when we took that decision. The public safety of Canadians was under threat. Was it really, though? Noah Mendelson of Eve is the executive director and general counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Noah, good morning. How are you? 
Good morning. I'm good, thank you. How are you, Rick? I'm okay. This is obviously a decision you were hoping for. Were Was it ever in doubt? Did you have some doubts that the judge would actually uh, go with what you were uh, you were thinking should be done? Well, when you go to court, you you expect the judge to look at the evidence and the legal arguments. We were confident in what we were presenting. Uh, there had been a different conclusion about parts of it from the commission of inquiry that had happened uh, a few months earlier. But we we remained confident in the arguments that we were making, and we were very satisfied with the decision that the federal court reached. You mentioned the Rouleau Commission, which was a government appointed position that ruled that uh, yeah, the government didn't uh, you know didn't uh, wasn't unreasonable in using the act. This coming from a federal court judge, it's got to hold a whole lot more weight, right? You know the the two the two judges were doing different things. The Commission of Inquiry is there to look at the at the facts, at the factual matrix of what happened at the protest and why it happened. Um, and and Justice Rouleau said as much at the commission. And he wasn't there to draw the kind of legal conclusions um, and said that, you know, others may draw different conclusions. So the federal court, that is his role, to assess the legality and the constitutionality of the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act and of the emergency orders that were passed under that act that, that really violated people's charter rights right across the country for the entire period of that emergency declaration. In Justice Mosley's ruling, he said, quote, and I just referenced it, temporary measures adopted to deal with the protests infringed provisions of the Canadian Charter of Rights. When it came to freezing bank accounts, I mean, for, for me, that was a line that was crossed. Was that the biggest bugaboo that the CCLA had about what uh, the Emergencies Act was doing to these uh, individuals? It's it's hard to say what was biggest. I think, uh, you know, coming at it from a very uh, broad perspective, and because CCLA has been involved in monitoring government overreach, um, you know, government excesses in the interest of public safety, where they're not careful enough about protecting fundamental rights and freedoms, we were, we were, we were concerned from the very from the very get-go about using emergency powers at all. An Emergencies Act, this had replaced the War Measures Act. It was there for for major serious threats to the security of Canada. And in those kinds of extreme circumstances, government is is allowed to give itself power to essentially bypass regular democratic processes of checks and balances in passing new laws. And the moment you declare an emergency like that, you're in a dangerous situation for democracy. So it really has to be justified by a very, very high threshold. And we felt that the threshold was simply not met. And that was the conclusion that the federal court reached. So the orders that came out afterwards, or uh, very the orders that came out at the same time about freezing bank accounts and about shutting down protests from coast to coast to coast across Canada of protest of you know, regardless of content, just in certain circumstances, all of that was deeply concerning as well. But the use of emergency powers is something we should all be hyper aware of and and concerned about because those are important and critical times, but they are dangerous powers for a government to have. In our final minute, 90 seconds together, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised or anyone was surprised when Krista Freeland announced that they're going to appeal. And we, we don't quite know, you know what the appeal process is going to look like and what the decision is going to be. But has a new precedent already been set, i.e. will future governments be extra cautious before using this act again? 
We certainly hope so, and that is part of the accountability measures that are built into the Act and part of the reason for us pursuing this so vigorously at CCLA to make sure that this government is on notice, that there will be accountability and a reckoning if the Act is used improperly. Noah, thank you so much for your time and insight this morning. Thank you very much. Noah Mendelson-Aviv is the Executive Director and General Counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. If you missed the news regarding the Emergencies Act ruling from Federal Justice Richard Mosley, go online to 900chml.com and globalnews.ca and get caught up with what happened earlier this week. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. In advance of this week's New Hampshire primaries, Ultimately won by former President Donald Trump, the top candidates, including Mr. Trump, as well as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis before he dropped out, and former U.S. Ambassador uh, Nikki Haley, called the border not so hot, a worsening problem, perhaps they should build a massive wall to stop illegal crossings. U.S. Republicans certainly looking at the border. But they were not talking about the U.S.-Mexico border, They were talking about the U.S.-Canada border. What the heck's going on? Phil Gursky is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, a former CSIS analyst, also the author of When Religion Kills, and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Phil, good morning. How are you? I'm very well, Rick. Digging out from an ice storm, but aside from that, I'm I'm alive. (laughs) Is this hyperbole or or are there real safety and security concerns at the Canada-U.S. border? Well, I think you have to take what's happening in the Republican primaries with a box of salt, right? I mean, we have all these allegations and accusations going back and forth. And, you know, it's politics, right? We have to call it for what it is. There's no more important issue between Canada and the United States than the security, safety, and free passage at our border. You're you're well as, as well as I am and your listeners, how much trade goes back and forth between our two countries. It's an important issue that, you know, certainly when I was at CSIS, uh, we, we took very seriously other Canadian departments as well. We share a lot of information with our American friends. It's not perfect, but, you know, we do have a really good exchange, I think, with our, our American allies. And we're doing the, everything possible to make sure that it doesn't become a problem. So is the situation perfect? No. But I like to see a lot more data from the Republicans justifying why they're saying that it's as bad as it is. The Customs and Border Protection statistics uh, show that nearly 500 people on the terrorist watch list were apprehended at the Canada-U.S. border between October 2022 to last September, compared to just 80 at the southern border. So you can see why they're all, oh my gosh, we've got to pay extra attention to the northern border. Uh, Those stats, I I guess, in black and white kind of speak volume that a lot more uh, dangerous people, perhaps, are at the northern border. What's your assessment of that? Well, yeah, I I hadn't heard those figures. And yes, I think on the surface, they are very shocking. My first question as an old intel guy is, um, who are they? What terrorist groups or ideologies do they subscribe to? Um, Do we already know about them? Are we sharing intelligence going back and forth? But yeah, it's a very alarming figure. But I, again, I think that, you know, the devil's in the details, as they say, Rick. And without knowing more about why these people were placed on a terrorism watch list. And, and bear, bear in mind, you know, the Americans have placed tens of thousands of people on this list, many of whom deserve to be there, many of whom I, I would have some questions as to why they're on the list in the first place. Bulking up protection at the northern border. Nikki Haley said, you know, maybe we should build a big wall like they have in the southern parts of the U.S., Um, Whether or not they go that far, what would a bulked up protection at the border look like? Just more customs officials? 
I, I guess, but can you imagine the cost of building a wall from BC to Newfoundland or to New Brunswick rather? <laughs> no. I mean, simply look at it, it ain't gonna happen. This isn't the Mexican border we're talking about, you know, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just more harassment at the border, slower crossing times. I mean, hey, I'm old enough, Rick, to remember going to see Detroit Tiger games when I was a kid and growing up in London, Ontario, where you got to the border and you said hi to the border guard and you anywhere on your merry way. Uh, those days have passed, especially since, you know, post 9-11. So I guess we're talking about uh, more stringent questions being asked, perhaps uh, more pre-clearance. Um, you're familiar with Nexus cards. I have a Nexus card getting into the States, which facilitates my entry. But I guess there's always things you you can do to make the process more laborious than it already is. It is the longest unguarded or unpatrolled border in the world. Um, do you get the sense that maybe sometime soon or sometime down the road that might change? Anything's possible, depending on who's in power. Uh, if the Republicans do regain the White House uh, next year, uh, rather later on this year, it is a distinct possibility. But again, I go back to my earlier point. Uh, what would you do? Let's say, you know, in the stretch between uh, you know, Alberta, Montana, and Manitoba, Manitoba, North Dakota. I mean, you can imagine what it would cost to, you know, uh, secure that part, putting up a wall or, you know, fortifying it. I really have no idea. We're probably talking trillions of dollars here. So, yeah, I guess it's possible. But, you know, we here in Canada and our American friends uh, boast about the fact that it's the world's largest undefended border. It's, it's not undefended. It's lightly defended, I yeah. would say. And I think we'd want to do everything possible to keep it that way. From an economic standpoint, that would have massive reverberations. It would. You know, you see what's happening now in the Red Sea, Rick, with the with these targeting uh, transport vessels, maritime vessels. It's, it's already having an effect on inflation. It's having an effect on the cost because goods are that more expensive to go around the Cape of, uh, uh, you know, in South Africa. If we're talking about delays at the border, a lot of things we get shipped from Amazon come from the States. There will be delays in that. So it will have effect on our economy by raising prices again. Absolutely. I'm getting ready for one of the candidates, not named... Nikki Haley, to suggest that Canada would pay for the wall as well. <laughs> oh, well, you know, let's not go down that pathway of what a potential for future slash former president might say. Yeah. But I, I like to think that cooler heads are going to prevail and that, you know, our Canadian American counterparts will sit down, discuss the real nature of the problem, rhetoric aside, and put in, 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 in place uh, practices to make it better. On that note, the potential of another Trump presidency is, would this be a, I don't know, a, a bad thing, an apprehensive thing that the intelligence community is cont contemplating? Yeah, another great question. I mean, I'm hearing rumors that, you know, um, Mr. Trump does not like the intelligence services because they've gone against some things he said. There's talks about purging the intelligence services in the States. And who knows? I, what Mr. Trump says and what Mr. Trump does are often two very, very different things. Mm -hmm. But again, uh, you know, on a bilateral basis, we, you know, Canadians and Americans are about the closest you can get. It's like a hand in glove in terms of intelligence sharing and intelligence analysis. So we're going to get along fine. It's the politicians that get in the way. So then states Mr. Trump and here in Canada, we have a government that ignores intelligence. So we, we that work as spies, Rick, got along famously and we did our jobs properly. It's the politicians we have to worry about. <laughs> they always seem to get in the way. <laughs> Phil, absolutely appreciate the time this morning. Uh, good luck digging out. Thanks, Rick. Take care. Phil Gursky is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, a former CSIS analyst and also the author of When Religion Kills. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is Data Privacy Week.
And according to a new survey by Interact, Canadians are worried that their personal data is more exposed than ever. And frankly, we should be. Just this week, we learned of a privacy breach at Hamilton City Hall. 59 people who recently delegated to council had their email addresses, their phone numbers, their home addresses exposed after online documents were not properly obscured. We are committed to taking concrete actions now to address this matter and, most importantly, prevent future reoccurrences. City Manager Marnie Klecky says the breach was caused by the use of the wrong computer program to redact the documents. Obviously, some human error in that. Colette Stewart is a Managing Counsel and Enterprise Privacy Lead at Interact and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Colette, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic, although I am um, maybe more afraid than ever before about my data, and I'm sure everyone's in the same boat because it's everywhere. Yes, Rick, absolutely. Consumers have a lot of information that's being handled by companies and organizations that they've disclosed this information to, and Canadians are concerned. What did you learn in your study? What are Canadians worried most about? You know, Canadians are concerned that their personal data is exposed more than ever. There are concerns that companies have access to too much of their data. Only 40% of Canadians actually feel confident in their ability to keep their online personal information safe. So really, Canadians want to know how they can have greater control over their online information and how it's shared. So before we get to that, um, are we at a point of no return? I mean, we've shared a lot of stuff already. We're in a such a technological world right now. Are we beyond the point of no return? You know, Rick, it's an interesting question. And I think really what organizations have to think about is maintaining and growing the trust that they have with their consumers. Canadians really want to be able to tell organizations, this is what I want you to do with the information I've disclosed. I want you to be able to delete the data that I've given you, and I want to know how you're handling it. Do we know, and I know this is a big we, but do we know what we are agreeing to? Rick, that is probably the key. Canadians want to understand how organizations are handling the information that they disclose. And the majority of Canadians, the tune of 87%, really don't know what exactly is happening. So they are not clear on the consent and how their personal information is being shared because they don't understand the terms that they're agreeing to. Six in ten say they don't understand. And I would imagine that many more don't even read the terms, right? Whenever you're agreeing to something, I've, I've been there too. I mean, there's like a laundry list of things to go to and you just, yeah, I'll accept. I'm, I'm good. Yeah. And a lot of the language that individuals encounter when they are agreeing to provide their information is vague. It, it doesn't explain exactly what's happening. 69% of Canadians say because corporate language is describing data usage that's so vague, they don't even get it. Colette Stewart is the Managing Council and Enterprise Privacy Lead at Interact. They have a new survey out during Data Privacy Week that shows Canadians, a lot of them, worried about their personal data and uh, that it's more exposed than ever before. I'd certainly be one of those Canadians as well. What should we be doing? Do you have any tips for people out there listening right now 
to say, all right, the next time you encounter a situation or can you go back and change anything? What can you tell us? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. First of all, think. Think about what you're sharing and why. Think about who you're sharing your information with. Is this a trusted organization? Take a second just to read what you're agreeing to so that you personally are comfortable with the information that you're sharing. Look for trusted brands like Interact where you know that they are protecting your personal information, not only with what they're collecting, how they explain it, but the security behind how they're handling your data. And if you're not comfortable, go back to your organization and ask the questions that will make you feel affirmed. Are there worse offenders than others? I'm just thinking of the social media field, and we've we've seen and heard of about, uh, you know, breaches from social media companies. Are they among the worst of the worst? It's hard to understand exactly who is doing what. But what we recognize as Interact is that individual privacy rights, that's the cornerstone of how an organization that collects data runs their business. And the necessity is to provide that framework to protect personal autonomy, dignity, trust, and to make sure that individuals know how their personal information is being handled and handling that information consistent with the consent that an organization has been given. And because our personal data is virtually everywhere, if it does get into the wrong hands, I mean, that could have, that could have huge impacts on your finances. It's very important to understand, as we discussed earlier, what you're consenting to, because information in the hands of bad actors have, can have very negative implications for an individual. So that's looking and understanding, why am I giving my data to this company? Do I really need to provide them with my credit card? And being careful about bad actors who have made it their mission to manipulate the information of individuals. If you go on to the interact.ca website, we have several um, directions on how to keep your data safe and how to make sure in this large digital economy that you are using brands that are trusted and you're disclosing your information to those companies that are reliable. It is a very important topic, and I invite our listeners to go to interact.ca and get those tips. Colette, thank you so much for your time this morning. Rick, have a great day, and thank you very much for having me. Colette Stewart, Managing Counsel and Enterprise Privacy Lead at Interac. Again, 77% of Canadians, I thought that number was actually kind of low. I think it would be at the 90 percentile, feel their personal data is more exposed than ever before. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is a very interesting story. We know we live in a world of social media. We are as connected as we've ever been. Right? You can watch a video from someone in Fiji or in Argentina. Name every African nation, Morocco. You know, Someone can post a video and you're all of a sudden in their world and, and in some cases experiencing what they are experiencing, good or bad. And so let me bring you into the workplace because this is happening right now. Some people are going onto social media and filming when they are getting fired. So there was a 
one particular case, and I know there's a lot of similarities in some of the other videos that have been shared, but in this particular case, this individual who was a tech worker, her name is Brittany Peach. So she got tipped off that she could possibly get the old heave-ho because one of her co-workers got the old heave-ho. She was thinking, okay, something's going on, and she gets an email from someone in the company saying, hey, can we set up a video call? So she's putting two to two, two and two together and thinking, okay, it's, it's my turn now. I'm getting the pink slip. I'm getting the boot out the door. You know what I'm saying? So she realizes this is happening and she gets it in her mind that, oh, you know what? I'm going to film this. And not necessarily the people who are on the screen, but just her face, her, her reaction to what is happening. And so she posts this on TikTok with the heading, when you know you're about to get laid off, so you film it. And this thing has garnered thousands of views. Hi, Brittany. Hi. Thanks for meeting with me and Rosie. Um, we have an important meeting today. We finished our evaluations of 2023 performance. This is where you have not met Cloudflare expectations for performance. We've decided to part ways with you. Yeah, I'm going to stop right there. I have had the highest activity amongst my team. Um, so I don't think that that makes a lot of sense for me. Also, um, every single one-on-one I've had with my manager, every conversation I've had with him, has he has been giving me nothing but I am doing a great job. Things have been going really, really well. So I disagree that my performance hasn't been um I haven't met performance expectations. So again, this tech worker was not the only one being let go. There was a number of people at this company that, according to the higher-ups, just weren't getting the job done. And obviously they're looking at their bottom line thinking, okay, this is what we got to do. The, the part of the thought process going through her mind, and, and a lot of other people are doing this, is... I I need, this is my form of retribution, right? Because it's one thing to tell your friends or your family members, you know what, I got canned today. And, you know, they, they kind of feel sorry for you and they want to be supportive. It's another thing to share your raw, in real time emotion as, you, you know, you feel like your world is crumbling all around you. Right? This is your employment. This is your livelihood, and you're, it's being crushed by your employer. And so sharing it with a video, for those who are sharing it, I think is somewhat empowering. Right? L look what happened to me. There's, there's a fine line here as well, though, because the sympathy aspect of it only goes so far. And... In, in hindsight, and I know that Brittany Peach has come out and said, you know, I, I have no regrets of doing this. But in hindsight, there are some ramifications in doing this. Think about this, especially in the, the tech sphere, which is not a big world. I mean, I just mentioned we're, we're more connected than ever before. So here's this employee in the tech space who is filming herself getting laid off. And now she's going to expect another technology company, let's just say, to hire her. Well, I would suggest that a company, any company, is going to think twice before hiring a candidate who has clearly shown that she is not afraid to expose the company's 
inner workings publicly? What employer out there is saying, yeah, I want that person on my team? Especially in the technology world, when you're, when we're, and we're going to talk about it later on this hour, you know, data breaches and privacy and all that kind of stuff. Well, geez, if this person is, is filming this and sharing it with the world, do we really want that individual on our team? It also, to me, uh, suggests and clearly shows that the current temperature of employee-employee relationships is redlining. There's not a lot of trust I think in many respects, or a lot of employees are thinking any day now, it could be me, right? How many listening right now are just have that little nugget in the back of your brain. The economy's not going well. Everyone's talking about a recession. Cost of living is so high. What if, right? It's a very emotional kind of self-reflection that you're going through if this is, if this is my time. And for Brittany Peach, she knew, she got that feeling at least, that it was going to be her time to be let go. And this was her way to lash out or just garner some sympathy from family, friends, and complete strangers. And there was a lot of people that offered positive reinforcement. Hey, way to go. Way to stick it to the man. There could be some long-term ramifications, and probably will be, that are not going to go her way. That is for sure. This, I am sure, is going to be covered on an upcoming edition of the Employment Law Show, which you can hear Saturdays and Sundays at noon right here on 900 CHML. It's an interesting topic for sure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.